Hey guys, uh, before I share my episode with Damia, which is incredible, Damia is actually probably the most inspirational person I've ever spoken with in my entire life, and I'm so excited to share our conversation. I wanted to give a few updates. Uh, first, happy Mental Health Awareness Month. Yay. Um, as I posted earlier, I'm still selling stickers, so if you want a sticker... Just DM me, either my, you know, Sauce in the City Instagram or my personal one, and I will be more than happy to send those your way. Uh, Also, I did a poll on my regular Instagram um, to see if you guys would be interested in seeing or listening to two episodes a week for the month of May, because I happen to have a couple of conversations recorded that, um, you know, I hopefully will have... more to post later on but i was thinking um and the majority voted that yes they would be interested in listening to two episodes a week so i'm going to be doing that and yeah that's really it i don't really have much to mention aside from a really great book i'm reading um which is actually sorry i just finished the audiobook it is called Talking Strangers, and it's by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's fascinating. So I really encourage everyone to listen to that because it really shows the stats behind you, the, Atti- <laughs> the Atticus Finch quote, like you don't know anyone unless you walk about in their shoes. So sorry if that's not the real quote, but it's fascinating. Um, and last thing, I'm, I'm going to give a little trigger warning for this episode only because Damien talks a lot about her past and um, the abuse she dealt with. So if anything like that, you know, unsettles you or, you know, puts you in a bad place, just know that going into it or don't listen. But I do think that Damien's perspective just makes everything she has to say, like, I don't know the phrase I'm looking for, but it's... I really encourage everyone to listen to this episode. I think you'll really take something away from it. Anyways, I hope you enjoy and happy Mental Health Awareness Month again. Also, if you ever need to talk to someone, I'm here. everyone and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today I'm with Damia December who is a master Reiki practitioner, registered behavior therapist, and founder of Heal Me NYC. Hi thank you so much for having me on this wonderful podcast. I'm super excited to be here. I'm so excited that you came on and shout out to Liz and Laura for putting us in touch. Absolutely. It was so wonderful to be on their podcast as well. And I'm just excited to continue to spread this message and to talk about your passions and the passions of your listeners. Definitely. Okay. So why don't we start out um, with just like a little bit of a background. Where are you from? How old are you? What's your story? Yeah, I am from all over the United States. I moved every couple of years throughout growing up, but I was born in Flint, Michigan. And I went to the University of Michigan um, for psychology and anthropology, clinical research, before moving to New York City in 2013. 
and I am 29 years old, and I spent my first five years in the city working in foster care with therapeutic, traumatized children, uh, giving behavior therapy both in special needs schools and in homes, um, working with parents and children. Wow. Yeah. Did you always want to go into social work? No, absolutely not. So I have a strange life philosophy where I think if I have a preconceived notion about something that I'm not going to like something, then I force myself to do it. So when I was coming out of my undergraduate, I was going to go straight through for a PhD in clinical psychology. And I decided, you know, I need to get some more life experience before we should try to solve the world's problems. Maybe we should experience some of the world's problems. So I never wanted to live in the city and I definitely never wanted to do direct practice. And then that's why I moved to New York City and did social work, especially in foster care. I thought before I go into research, like let me see what it actually is like in our country, like what the needs are in our biggest city. Wow. And so why did you choose to study psychology? Like what was the intrigue or like interest in that? Definitely. My, um, I've suffered with suicidal depression uh, and ideation since I was four years old. And my father was diagnosed with schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia when I was a kid. My mother has depression. My brother has depression. Uh, so mental illness was, was a huge part of my family. I also grew up in a very traumatic household. So we had a lot of physical, emotional, mental, and sexual abuse in our house. And so as I, as I was growing up, all I wanted to do was to help other people. And the biggest issue in my personal life was all of that mental and emotional suffering. So when I went to university, that was a primary driver. If not helping people with that, at least understanding it. I wanted to more explore the research behind why we feel and think and go through these specific things. And during my time at university, that's when I really opened up the idea that instead of focusing on the abnormal, we can focus on the above normal, how to implement things like positive psychology in order to not only just thrive as a culture, but help people heal through their mental illness at the same time. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, mm-hmm. that's a lot. And it's interesting, actually, that you say that, you know, going through all of that suffering made you want to help others and in a similar way I feel like I kind of relate like when I lost my friend to suicide I pushed all of my emotion and and all my grief into becoming like this mental health advocate because I was too afraid to like confront my own issues with mental health that I knew I had did you feel like you were kind of transferring your own suffering into like a way to help others at all? Like, was it more of like a diversion, like a diversion from your problems or like a way to give back? Like, what was it for you? Absolutely. I completely understand what you mean. When I was working in foster care, obviously I thought I had gone through my trauma and resolved my issues. When I started working in foster care, I quickly realized that I hadn't because when you're trying to do good work in a field where you've been triggered or wounded, then the work that you're trying to do ends up re-triggering you and re-traumatizing you and re-wounding you. So what ended up happening is the lack of support in foster care and the very specific issues and abuses that I were dealing with were so triggering to me that I ended up having a suicidal episode 
working in New York City. And I ended up having to quit that job and take some time off. I actually worked at a Starbucks for an entire year in New York, which was its own. Yeah, that doesn't sound stress-free at all. (laughs) Exactly. But it, it allowed me this break from the work I was doing. And what ended up what I ended up realizing was that I exactly had been doing that. I had not taken my own self-care, my own wellness into any kind of consideration and had channeled all of my emotion, all of my energy, all of my willingness to live into helping others. That's beautiful, but it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so that's what actually inspired me to do my own healing work. And that's what led me to found Heal Me NYC, which is my wellness studio in Long Island City. The idea that the best thing you can do for others is to become the best, whole, healthiest version of you. Because when you're whole and healthy, when you give, you're giving extra. And it does not drain you and it does not trigger you. So it's not that the giving component is bad. It's just the best way to give is when you're full. And so absolutely, I completely agree with you. Um, I definitely use helping others as a way to ignore my own pain and motivate my continuation of, of living. However, full circle, what's really beautiful is now that I've healed myself, I still have that drive to help others. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I, I completely relate. It's almost like that, that quote, like that, that sticks with me sometimes, like don't light yourself on fire to keep others warm. Like, mm. like to the point of just make sure that you like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a yeah, metaphor no, now, exactly. but like, you know, that one, but that one's beautiful. It's like, that's the exact reason why you burn out. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> oh, like cliche, but it's true. So, yeah. um, and also how did you get involved with veterans rebuilding life? I know that's really important to Liz and that's how you guys met. Yes, absolutely. So Veterans Rebuilding Life is a 501c3, completely 100% volunteer-run nonprofit in Astoria. So they end up working full-time jobs, using their money to cover the costs of the organization so that they can give 100% of each donation to people who need it. And the way that I got involved with them was I was going through another hard time. After I worked at Starbucks, I actually ended up returning to foster care, thinking this time it'll be easier. But on each stage of your journey, things just become more challenging at a certain point. You have to develop new skills. And I went through a really bad breakup and relationship. And so a friend actually asked me to come to a bar. And then as soon as I got there, she gave me a t-shirt to volunteer. So she sort of like tricked me into volunteering. That's how I met them. It was a really funny story, but I got to know the people there. So they are comprised completely of veterans. Um, The board is 100% uh, Iraq and Afghanistan military veterans, combat veterans specifically. And I got connected with them and, and involved in their organization because they're actually addressing the issue of suicide. I didn't know it before I started volunteering with them, but 22 veterans a day commit suicide, and most of them are combat veterans. That means we lost more veterans to suicide than actually died in the wars. That's insane. Over the whole course of the 13 years. So it's so crazy. Um, and I, I shared my story with some of the members, and they shared their story with me. And what was really amazing was all of the trauma that I had gone through was not all too different than the trauma that they had gone through. The experiences and the specificity of that, absolutely different. 
but the pain was the same. And they recognize that too. So what they do is they help veterans by mentoring them. And then they connect them with children who've been wounded in combat anywhere in the world. And those veterans are responsible for saving the life of that child by raising money to get them necessary medical surgery or even hosting them in the US. And so through helping another person after helping themselves, they come together and, and actually over the 500 people that they've helped, zero have committed suicide. Wow, that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to learn more about that like after this because I, I knew nothing about that organization until um, Liz talked about it. Um, so I, I know we spoke over the phone the other day, but I was wondering if you could explain in your own words what exactly is Reiki and how like, and your journey to becoming a Reiki practitioner. Reiki is so hard to define. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. It really depends on your perspective. So there's the, the largest Reiki organization called the International Center for Reiki Training, and I'm an affiliate member with them. And they say it's a Japanese stress reduction technique. So you come into an office, you get somebody, they place their hands on you, on your meridians, and it helps you reduce stress. That's sort of like the vague definition Um the more specific definition, there's two ways to look at Reiki. Reiki is a healing practice and Reiki is a personal practice. So as a healing practice, it works on the idea of chi or chi in Japanese. So everything is made of energy and depending on the vibration of the energy, it's either heavy or light. So if you think about being really, really angry and how that feels in your body, versus really, really passionate and how that feels in your body. You're actually on the same spectrum, but anger can make us sick and passion helps us thrive. So the idea is that by working with the energy in a person, you can bring them from sickness to health. In a personal practice, what it actually is, is a practice of following unconditional love. So every morning as a Reiki practitioner, we say our precepts or it's like a little mantra, Uh, Just for today, I don't get angry, I don't worry, I'm kind to others, I'm filled with gratitude, and I devote myself to my work. So it's more similar to Buddhism in the sense that it's putting you in this mindset, and it's this path to follow every single day. I call it the practice of unconditional love. Um, And an energetic perspective, if you believe in energy, the idea is you're channeling in unconditional love into your body. If you more believe in the mind-body connection, what you're doing is you're reducing stress so significantly that you're improving your body's ability to naturally heal itself and your emotions ability. For me, I ended up finding Reiki through foster care. One of my coworkers actually ended up becoming a Reiki practitioner and was telling me about it. And she had her boyfriend, who was also a Reiki practitioner, do a free session for me. And during the session, I literally have the same thoughts that every person who comes to see me has. This is so dumb. What is this? This is weird. This is stupid. I don't feel anything. Until he put his hands on the bottom of my foot. And then I felt this warm, rushing, hot energy from the sole of my foot up to exactly where I had injured myself running. It was very specific. And then after the session, he, without knowing me at all, was able to identify how running is an important practice to me and how I need to take care of myself running and not abuse myself with the practice, which is what I had been doing. So it was very eye-opening. 
Um, I ended up getting sessions later in foster care because I just found it so interesting. And I felt better. I don't know what it was. I just felt better. And I'm a type of person who always thinks that if you can find something that's helpful for you, it's your responsibility to learn how to do it for yourself. We are all capable of healing and maintaining our own well-being, but we're also we're, we are also responsible too. The only person who is responsible for you is you. And so I asked my uh, Reiki practitioner who I was seeing if she would be willing to train me. And over the course of five years, because I took a long time, it doesn't take everybody that long, I became a Reiki master. So there's four different levels of training, and, and I went through all four learning how to do it for myself, for other people, and then learning how to teach it. That's so awesome. So it's so it sounds like it's, as you just said, like something that you, I think like, you know, on, on Instagram, you see like a lot of influencers getting like a Reiki session. That's the portion of like giving it to someone else, whereas it also is its own like practice and like that helps heal the practitioner. Absolutely. So the the entire idea of Reiki, and it fits on really well with what we were talking about mental health, how you have to take care of yourself first before you give. So the idea of Reiki is that you as a practitioner are receiving Reiki first. And then because you're full, you're able to give the extra to the person that you're treating. So the reason it took me so long as a Reiki practitioner to go from level one to master was because I had to do all of my own self-healing first. I had to, it's sort of like um, a faucet. If you think of energy as water and water's flowing through the faucet, if you have a blockage in your faucet, you're not gonna get very much water into the bucket. So you have to get rid of your own stuff first before you're effectively able to give to other people. It's one of the few practices in terms of holistic medicine where the practitioner isn't drained from the work that they're doing because it's it's both beneficial for the practitioner, they're receiving as they're giving. But kind of to mention in the in the more practical terms, it's a it's a mindset, it's a way of life. And that mindset is that all things deserve love, all things deserve respect, but you're priority has to be caring for yourself before giving to others. Would you say it's kind of similar to yoga in a way? Like the yoga, like the yogi, um, not like the physical, you know, like workout, but uh, more so like the spiritual aspect of it? Absolutely. There's a lot in common um, between yoga and Reiki. Yoga, we use the chakra system in Reiki healing, the exact same chakra system that we use in yoga. The way that I think about it is how energy is manipulated. So if you think of your feelings as energy, right? Um, You feel full of energy when you're excited. You feel no energy when you're depressed, right? So your feelings is energy. You can change your feelings based on talking. You can change your feelings based on physical movement, right? So when you do something like yoga, it's changing your energy. It's changing your feelings. It's working from the physical to the energetic. Reiki works the opposite way. It works from the energetic to the physical. So the idea is by getting and receiving positive energy, you're going to feel better and then you're going to do better. 
But what I like to do is I like to combine modalities. So I actually teach yoga classes, meditation classes, and do uh, counseling and coaching. So I combine Reiki into my counseling sessions and my coaching sessions, and I combine it into my yoga sessions because each person's different. The way some people can approach change through action, some people do it through working on their feelings, and some people do it through working on their thoughts. I think abandoning the one-size-fits-all model is the absolute best approach that we can take to mental wellness and overall well-being. Oh, 100%. So I was wondering if you could kind of describe to my listeners, because obviously they're just listening, you know, I'm a visual, like what a typical Reiki practice looks like. Like what are you doing as the practitioner? So each Reiki practitioner is highly unique. Everybody was taught in their own specific way. And we're actually encouraged to develop our intuition and, and practice the way that we feel like is best for our clients. So what my sessions typically look like is you come in and we spend about 30 minutes talking about what's going on in your life, Um, what your biggest stressors are, what um, goals you have as a person in in your overall life and how to become the best version of yourself. Then we do about 30 minutes of Reiki. So what that looks like is you lay down on the treatment table, you close your eyes, you take some deep breaths. And I place my hands on different parts of your body. So starting from your head, working my way down all the way to your feet. If a person doesn't want to be touched, I just hover my hands. Sometimes I'll guide you through a meditation while you're there telling you to breathe or say specific mantras out loud. Like, I love you is a good popular one that I use in my sessions. And I'll, in that process, focus on areas that I feel are in need. So that's sometimes the feet or with women, it's the sacral chakra. We go through a lot of trauma there. And I'll often look at the chakras. And after what we'll do is we'll talk about how the person experienced the session. And I always give homework. So the homework that I give is specific things that you can do at home to continue feeling better. And that often includes boundary setting exercises, um, mantras, and meditations at home. Awesome. And so, I mean, I'm sure, you know, just as like every practitioner is unique, that you know, every person has a unique outcome, but like, what are some of like the more common results that you've seen like your um, patients leave with? Most of my patients leave feeling relaxed, immediately feeling better from whatever they were feeling before. All of a sudden, whatever problem they came in with was just a little less heavy, less on their mind, and they felt more capable of addressing it. Um, Some people completely resolve their issue in one session. I've never had a person come to me who didn't experience a change. They always come back, my clients always come back, if they do come back, with slight variations of the issue. So for example, if we're working on anger, the anger subsides, and then the real problem, which was actually depression or anxiety, is the next issue that we're addressing. Because some people, we, we are complex human beings. We have layers of what we're going through. Um, sometimes people have some pretty crazy experiences. They'll feel very strange sensations, or um, they'll ask me about messages, and they'll have coincidences happen in their life and stuff like that. But overall, Reiki, in order for something to be defined as Reiki, the rule is it absolutely cannot cause harm in the person's life. It has to only be positive. 
have you ever like in you know how you just mentioned like some of like really like, the really unique experiences or do you have any ones that stick out yeah absolutely um so I think I mentioned it on Liz and Laura's podcast as well sometimes weird things will happen in sessions and I feel awkward sharing it with the person because I know it sounds crazy so one time I was doing a session and I smelled roses very strongly like the whole room smelled like roses and that's never happened to me before and after the session I told the clients that I'm like I don't know what it means but I have a very strong smell of roses a very strong sensation of roses and the client thought I was crazy she's like that's that's crazy. You should see a doctor. And then she sort of left just feeling relaxed, but weirded out. And then before the end of the day, I had an email in my inbox from her saying, my husband surprised me with a dozen roses as soon as I got home. How did you know? That's amazing. And that's crazy. That's so crazy. The way that I see interactions like that is I set a very strong intention before every session, which is I'm only here to serve the highest good of the person that I'm working with. So if something needs to happen in order to open their mind or open their heart to an experience, then they'll experience that. But if not, then then they won't. So every person kind of has a situation happen that is best for them in their in their place in life. That's that's so crazy. <laughs> but I'm sure they left feeling like they got, you know, <laughs> that they, they left like feeling better about themselves and then the husband probably was like yep I definitely <laughs> did not know that um how, what are some like lessons in personal in like the personal side of Reiki that people can like can and should incorporate into their daily lives or like ones that you would recommend specifically now with everything going on absolutely the, the personal practice side of Reiki is all about the present moment. And I think that that is so important right now. We are uncomfortable in our present moment. Like we, at this point, especially here in New York City, we've been at home for over a month. It's crazy. And we're told we're going to be here at least for another two weeks, if not a little longer. And so when we're uncomfortable in the present moment, we tend to do two things. We revisit the past and ruminate about that or we try to start feeling anxious about the future and worry about that. And the whole concept of Reiki as a personal practice is how to show up for yourself with unconditional love in the present moment. Yes, the present moment's uncomfortable, but when you were little and you were learning how to brush your teeth, that was uncomfortable. And you had to learn how to do it in order to become a healthy adult. Every time I eat a salad, I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Honestly, it's good for me. And I told Liz and Laura that too. Like, I'm not the best person to talk about nutrition. It's ultimately, you're uncomfortable for a reason. And, and instead of running from that reason, exploring that reason. And I don't mean in the way that we tend to do it in depression, where we ruminate. I mean, showing up for yourself with unconditional love. And that looks very different. A lot of us, when I say that, how? How do you show up for yourself with unconditional love I don't even like myself very much or I definitely don't like the way I look or the way I eat or the way I talk whatever it is that you don't like how can you show up for yourself and Reiki teaches you you sit you place your hand on your heart and you just be present if you don't like yourself that's okay that's how you respond if I'm mad about this that's okay 
what if everything that you are feeling and thinking and being in this moment is okay because there's a part of you that's going to take care of you anyway? Definitely. I, it's it's almost like – I mean, I guess this is a little different, but I, I like – I remember last year around this time I got um, a journal and it was like the five seconds – five minutes a day journal or whatever it's called. And I noticed that like when I was writing – my theory, three things that I was grateful for and like three things that I, that would make the day great. Those things ended up happening because like I would had them in my mind as opposed to like thinking about everything that could go wrong and everything that like I didn't want to happen. Absolutely. Reiki works based on the power of intention and not in the, if you've heard of the secret and the secret of abundance and the yeah, yeah. stuff, not exactly in that way. Essentially, it's the idea that the placebo effect, when you believe something is going to happen, it has a higher chance. You're, you have a, when you believe a medicine is going to work for you, your body responds as if it's working. It's not the belief. It's the intention. Your body, your mind, your feelings will follow the intention that you set for it. It's not magic. It's just the way that our subconscious works. So if you're very mindful about your intention versus, you know, when we're just living our daily lives, we're just not aware of what those parts of us need. When you're mindful and you set that intention, then your emotions in your mind and your body will catch up with you. And so with gratitude, that's a perfect example. As soon as you say, I, they are not feeling well. If you say the words, or write the words. I am so excited for the day I get to feel better again. That feels instantly differently in your body. It's yeah. true. And it's going to help you look for that outcome sooner rather than later. I love that. So, I mean, kind of circling back to, you know, or go like back when you weren't, it, you were channeling your energy to helping others because you, um, you weren't like help, but you weren't helping yourself. Like what are some things that you do now aside from Reiki to protect your emotional self so that you can help heal others? I have conversations with myself daily. Um, probably too often, <laughs> but I literally have conversations with myself out loud. Um, an example is if I wake, I'm not a morning person. I want to be, and I'm just not. And so when the alarm goes off, I just feel bad. And so the first thing that I say to myself in the morning is, it's okay, sweetie. It's just for today. You can do it. Let's get out. And I literally say that out loud. And the same is true for when I'm working with people. The first thing that I do is I ask myself, what do I need? I put my hand on my heart and I say, what do you need? What is the most loving thing I can do for you in this moment? And sometimes that means asking to reschedule. And I don't like to do that, but sometimes that's what that means. Um, and being honest and authentic. Sometimes that means reducing the amount that you're trying to do. Sometimes it means pushing through and saying that we're going to have a conversation about those feelings later. But that's a huge change. I was my last priority when I was first doing foster care. And now I'm my first priority. And not because I'm narcissistic. But because I understand that I'm only able to give the extra. 
That means the first amount of work I have to do in helping people is still up myself so that I have extra to give. Definitely. And has your emotional health been, uh, I mean, obviously, but like affected in any specific ways with the pandemic and everything happening now? And like, what have you been doing to maintain connection while social distancing? I think that obviously everybody's going through (laughs) something with this. But it is triggering people in very different ways. For me, I grew up homeless. And I've worked very, very hard to try to create some financial stability in my life. And this crisis has absolutely ruined that. I don't know if Heal Me is going to make it. I don't know if I'm self-employed. So without the business and all essential, non-essential businesses to close down. And it's kind of created this insecurity that is all the way back in my childhood. So thinking that I've resolved everything, I obviously haven't. It's brought that up for me. And that's something that I'm actively working on and working with. I've been in a situation before and I've survived. So there's no reason to think that that won't be true in the future. And what can I do in the moment? So I know I sent you like a fundraising request earlier today, but that's how I'm channeling it for myself, which is if I have even $10 to give, that means I'm okay. Yeah. And if I'm okay right now, there's no reason to think that I won't be okay tomorrow and taking each thing moment by moment. Yeah, you it's I mean, considering everything you've been through, you have like the most optimistic, uplifting spirit of like anyone I've ever met. Holy shit. <laughs> Thank you. But in terms of like connecting with each other, uh, if I'm honest, I've actually been taking a lot of time away from people because that uplifting spirit, I only want to share that, right? I, but that means that I have to fill up first. So I've been taking a lot of time to try to find my, to fill me up, to to feel that way again. And I really appreciate you, you reaching out and us having this conversation because every single time I talk about these issues, I'm reminded the whole journey was worth it. If anything that you and I share from from our stories helps even just one person, then the whole story was absolutely worth it. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so I always wrap up with a couple of questions that I took from a New York Times article, and um, I'm going to ask you them. So what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Oh, that's a, that's a heavy question. Yeah, rowing real deep. <laughs> real deep. Um, it's, a very, it's a very intense uh, moment. But when I was little... My, I was about four years old and my father and my mother were physically fighting each other. My father was actually beating my mother. And I was so afraid for my mother and for my younger brother, who was two, that I actually stood up to him and like tried to, and I yelled at him and I told him, you need to stop right now, even though I was so, 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 so scared. And that's a moment that I remember ever since then, um, throughout my whole life, that if I could be so small, and so scared and still do what I believed was right, even though I knew I was going to get hurt doing it. If I could do that then, I can do that every single day. I'm not afraid of anything if I really take the moment to think about it, because I know that I've already faced my biggest fear.
here all the way back then. And what I tell people and I tell clients is if you take a moment to remember your most courageous moment in your whole life, that is the moment that you were absolutely the most afraid. Anytime you're afraid, it's a reminder that it's an opportunity to be courageous right now. And that is the best wisdom. Oh my God, I love that so much. I would only like tear up. <laughs> but that's that's very true. I mean, and like obviously traumatic events like that like really stick with you. So you can always, if you flip the narrative, look back on that and be like, okay, this is something to like drive me to do like the best I can do or like be the best person I can going forward because even though I have this traumatic memory, it will be a reminder in every situation where I think like, oh, I can't do this or I can't keep going. Absolutely. Okay, next question is, do you think everything happens for a reason? Again, this is a very controversial question. Way to go New York Times, like we need to go through this right now. Exactly. Um, I absolutely do. I do not put that on other people. I will never say that somebody else's suffering was meant to happen. I will say that in my life, all of the people that I've helped in my adulthood have gone through exactly or something so close to what I went through when I was a kid. And if I didn't go through that as a child and a teenager, I would not have the frame of reference to help in the very specific ways that I was able to help. So I see my story as absolutely intentional and so many little parts if any one thing had been different it wouldn't have come out the way that it has i kind of view it as there is a path and the path is a river but i'm in a river so i can choose to feel like i'm drowning i can choose to drift left or drift right but ultimately i'm going where the river goes so it's sort of my responsibility is to choose my experience in and of the path that I'm meant to be on. Definitely. Have you read the book, um, Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed? No, I haven't. It's my favorite book of all times. And it's, it's very similar to what you said, where basically Cheryl Strayed, she's the one who wrote Wild. And she, before like all of that happened, she ran a column um, where she was Dear Sugar and basically, like, so she was an advice columnist, but her past was so insane. Like, she went through every trauma you can think of. And she's also just an incredibly beautiful writer. So whenever someone writes to her, she's able to really tap into, like, her own personal um, struggle with, like, whatever happened and and relate to every single person in a way that's not, like, uh, I feel like because like you know you can there's a very like thin line of like becoming uh, like demeaning or condescending but she just does it in a way that's just like I'm with you and it's, oh, it's I read it like whenever I feel the need to I love it so much uh, definitely I need some I need some inspiration especially over the next few weeks so I will definitely look that up I think that that's so important exactly what you said that all suffering is suffering and that's one thing that we do when we hear each other's stories. Like, oh, what I went through was not as bad as what you went through. Pain is pain. It's all relative. The emotional pain that you feel in your brain is no different than physical pain. It lights up the same centers in your brain. So as long as you are emotionally hurting, you are physically suffering. 
And it doesn't matter what caused that. No human being deserves to suffer for any length of time. Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Mm, um, in terms of a mantra, it's, it's pretty simple. My mantra is I love you. Um, I say it every day. It was one that actually helped me out of an active suicidal episode. I just had a timer on my phone and every five minutes I said, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Didn't feel it, just said it. And because of the way that your body works, if you say it, you'll think it. If you think it, you'll eventually feel it. But in terms of um, a quote, that my favorite author is Milan Kundera. He's a Czech author. He wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Oh, yeah, and I have that book. Yeah, it's, there's a quote in there that I think is so lovely about coincidence. And he says, do not chide the novelist for praising coincidence. Because in denying the beauty of coincidences, you de- deny your life of all significant meaning. And he's not saying that coincidences are real. He's just saying that by noticing those little things, it makes life more beautiful. And I really love that quote because it means that no matter what you're going through in this specific moment, you can choose to look at the beauty of any one single thing, even your own pain if you want to, or something outside of you. There's always beauty to be seen. And I'm not saying ignore, you know, difficult, hard times but at least give beauty and love the opportunity to have an equal playing field in your mind, equal attention. Oh, I love that so much. I'm definitely going to read it now. <laughs> I'm just looking for a book. <laughs> what do you love most about yourself? I, that's, you're so good. These questions, like they're, they're <laughs> deep. They're in there. I try. I try. <laughs> I love my ability to no matter how much pain I'm in, to still love the person on the other side of me. One of the greatest things that I feel like I've ever done was I uh, forgave my father. My father was actually incarcerated for the abuse um, that he did to me when I was 14. And when I was 18, I wrote a letter to the parole board offering to pay for his mental health services. And it's not that I will ever have my father in my life again. Absolutely not. He is not a healthy person and I deserve to have these boundaries. But the emotional component there that it took me a long time to get to is that my journey is my journey. And I will never let another human being or experience change or influence the person I want to be. I want to be a loving person with proper boundaries. And that's I think what I love about myself the most is how I'm able to hold compassion for people, no matter who you are, no matter how much you've maybe hurt me or hurt others. Every life deserves compassion, but that doesn't mean that I have to let anybody walk over anybody else. And that ability to hold both and balance both is something I'm really proud of. That's incredible. And I feel like that's incredibly difficult to do as well. Like. Yeah. When's your birthday, by the way? Oh, I'm an Aquarius, February 18th. I'm on the cusp of Pisces. How about you? I'm a Virgo, which is I very much relate to. <laughs> <laughs> but for better or for worse. And finally, 
my last question is how do you find solace in the city? I love looking, and this is the hard part about um, the quarantine, is I love looking at the dirty parts of the city. One of the things that I did, quote unquote, dirty parts of the city, one of the things that I did um, right after my suicidal episode in foster care is I used walking as a way of um, coping. So walking is really great for you. It's bilateral stimulation. And I would just, I walked the entire island of Manhattan end to end. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And I've been on every single subway train end to end throughout the whole five boroughs, including the Metro North, uh, Long Island Railroad, and even the path to New Jersey. And I love looking at the little parts of the city, like the minuscule beauty. Um, the One of my happiest memories was I was sitting in Flushing Meadow Park, and there was just a whole bunch of bumblebees. And I used to be afraid of bees, like so scared. And I wasn't afraid. All of this work that I did somehow made me unafraid of them. And I just looked at them and you could see the little veins on each wing and how intricate and delicate something so small was. So looking at how much beauty is in something so tiny, from that to the graffiti, to the people throughout every single different borough of Manhattan and Astoria and Queens, all of it, there's so much beauty here. And when I notice it, that's what gets me solid. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, the same – I don't know, for me with New York, I feel like everything I hate about it, I also love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's, there's no place like it. Well, Damia, thank you so much for sharing your story. You are truly, like, one of the like most inspiring people I've ever met or virtually oh. met. <laughs> Uh, where where can everyone, I mean, hopefully, you know, once this episode is published, hopefully we can leave our apartments. Like, uh, where can they, you know, take a Reiki practice or do, like, a yoga class? So once it's all over, my studio is Heal Me NYC. We're in Long Island City, just off of Court Square. You can Google us. Our address is there. But in the meantime, I'm actually doing virtual counseling virtual Reiki, even virtual Reiki training. I can train people over online. It's obviously not our ideal way of doing things, but I'm more than happy to connect with people via Zoom and and work in that capacity. So anybody who wants to connect with me personally can shoot me an email at damia, D-A-M-I-A, at healme.nyc. Awesome. And also, um, I know that you reached out today that, um, for a donation for the Veterans Rebuilding Life. So how can they support that as well? Definitely. So Veterans Rebuilding Life, like I said, gives 100% of every single donation to the people who need it. So right now, EMS workers, nurses, FDNY, NYPD, and and NTA workers don't have personal protective equipment to keep them safe from COVID-19, and they're getting sick and they're dying. I think the most recent number I saw for MTA workers is 68 workers have already passed away because of infection. So what Veterans Rebuilding Life is doing is they are purchasing uh, medical face shields that can be reusable. So they're a plastic shield covering the full face and donating them for free and delivering them to workers in need. Each shield costs only $10. And so you can donate at veteransrebuildinglife.org or via Venmo at VRLNYC. 
and $10 is one shield for a person in need. Awesome. I'm doing that right now, actually. <laughs> I truly appreciate it. Of course. Well, Damia, thank you again. And yeah, bye, everyone. Yeah. Thank you.